Daniel 9, verses 1 through 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your holy and sacred word, Father. We thank You for giving it to us. We thank You for preserving it. We thank You, O Father, uh, for seeing to it that we each have a copy in our hands. How blessed we are, O Father, to have Your Word. And O Father, we look to You now that You would be our instructor and our guide, our teacher, as we look to Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This morning, I'm going to take some time and explore an excursus on the subject of the Word of God. And uh, some of you may be wondering, okay, uh, what on the subject of God? An excursus on the subject of God. And someone might be saying, okay, I can see Tina. She's looking at me like, okay, what in the world is an excursus? And if you're asking that question, don't feel bad. The first time that I heard the word excursus was at seminary, and one of my professors who was an old West Point graduate, big barrel chest, need no PA system, uh, Dr. Denny Proutot, and uh, he, he would get in the classroom, and in fact, uh, uh, other classrooms in the uh, seminary would close their doors when Denny was speaking because his voice projected so loudly that you could hear him upstairs, and they actually would close their doors so that they didn't hear Denny, and uh, Denny would say, all right, men, uh, this morning we're going to entertain an excursus, and I, I remember hearing that, and I remember thinking to myself, well, that sounds fine. I, I hope it doesn't hurt. <laughs> what in the world is an excursus? It's actually the best word that we could use. Um, all kidding aside, an excursus is like a digression uh, or an extended treatment of a book. A lot of times we call these appendixes. You know how you're, you're reading a book and there, there might be some subject that comes up that's really important and uh, the author, instead of elaborating on it in a particular chapter, uh, the author will then uh, say, see Appendix A or Appendix B or Appendix C or what have you. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. Let me explain. I think we'll see what I'm up to here in a couple of minutes. If we look at verse 2 of our reading this morning, in Daniel 9-2, we have something going on that is really rare in Scripture. And I don't want to move on until I point this out to you. Uh, we have one biblical prophet okay, consulting another biblical prophet in order to determine what's going to take place. If you look at verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel... Perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, um, now last week we looked at this, although I didn't point, really, I don't remember, I don't think I pointed any attention to it because I had intentions of looking at it next. But uh, we did look at the passages that Daniel was studying. And you don't need to turn there this week. Uh, we did turn there last week. And 
And I'm just going to abbreviate those passages. One, uh, one section would be Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. If you listen, you, perhaps this will uh, remind you of these verses. Where Jeremiah, now Jeremiah it was much older than Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah was already uh, prophesying and preaching and teaching through the land of Judah uh, before Daniel was born. And when Daniel was a young man being carried off into uh, Babylon, uh, Jeremiah's ministry is really at that point starting to wind down. So Jeremiah is long gone uh, to be with the Lord by the time uh, Daniel is writing Daniel 9-2. Uh, but back to Jeremiah 25, Daniel is studying this words where Jeremiah says this whole land, and the land there would be the land of Judah, uh, which would include the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, and the temple, and the temple precincts, and all of that. Uh, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then the next passage, taken four chapters later in, in Jeremiah 29, uh, 10, uh, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. Okay, now, the point that I'm driving at here is a point that's painfully obvious. It's Daniel that believes his Bible, doesn't he? We should expect that, right? Daniel believes his Bible. We should expect that. And as we gather here this morning, uh, we're a group of people who share Daniel's convictions, amen? I mean, we believe our Bible, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, we study the Bible each week. We read the Bible, uh, try to read the Bible daily in our homes uh, with an eye towards not just reading it, but with an eye towards being changed by it, to, uh, to follow the Bible. Um, um, so, you know, Liz, one of the words you've just said for me, one of the greatest compliments that I, that I can receive is when someone says, I preach the Word of God. You know, I thank you for that. That's what I endeavor to do week in and week out. Why? Because I have a conviction, I have a deep conviction that if we want the work of God to be done, then we need to use the Word of God to do it. Does that, does that make sense? You don't, in other words, you don't need to hear from me. I don't have, apart from the Word of God, I don't have anything to offer anyone in this room. The only thing I have to offer is what comes from the Word of God. So each week, what am I up to? Well, to the, to the best of the abilities that God has given me, I'm trying to discern what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through each passage that, that we look at. And we all gather here because we want to hear this. We all gather together because we want to learn together. And as we look around the room, as I've already given thanks to God for, what's happening to us as we do this? We're changing, aren't we? And I'm very happy to tell people at Presbytery here uh, a month ago, almost a month ago, that this isn't the same church it was several years ago. Many of the same people are in it. We're not the same we were a couple of years ago, are we? Do you feel like you're still the same? Doesn't look like it to me. God is changing us. What is He making us into? He's making us into the likeness of Jesus, isn't He? He's doing that through His Word. 
Now, uh, all of this having been said, the excursus that I want to embark on this morning is in the form of a question. And it's this question. Why do we believe the Bible to be the Word of God? Why do we believe our Bibles to be the Word of God? I mean, this couldn't be a more important question, could it? Um, once in a while, someone will ask me a very valid question, and he'll say, why do you maintain that the Bible is the Word of God? Or sometimes it's put to me this way, how can you Christians maintain that your Bible is the real Bible? And that you're the only ones who have the real Bible? Has anybody been asked that question, by the way? Yes. You know, if you're engaging a culture, you're going to get asked that question. And it's the most fundamental question because every doctrine that we, that we teach, where does it come from? It comes from the Bible. There's only one place we can learn about Jesus. Where is that? The Bible. Why should we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Now, the reason, you know, the reason that I ask this question and the reason that I want to entertain this question is because it is possible to believe the Bible to be the Word of God without being able to give a reasonable response as to why you believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Let me explain that. Um, it, it should be said right at the start, before I go any further, that uh, a saving conviction of the Bible as the Word of God is produced in the heart by the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, for instance, Jesus tells us these words, quote, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. That is when the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus is speaking just before His crucifixion when He says these words. He's promising that a helper will come, right? You know the passage. And he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and following, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit capital S, the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then uh, down in verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. In fact, I think in all of the confession, I think this is probably my favorite paragraph. At least it's one of my favorite paragraphs. Uh, it is so beautifully written. The first chapter in the Westminster Confession, which is not Scripture, it's, it's, it's just a vehicle upon which uh, we use to unify ourselves. It's a vehicle upon which uh, we use to learn the Word of God. Says the confession or the uh, shorter catechism comes out of this body of material. But in chapter one, uh, the subject is the Word of God. And in paragraph five of chapter one, we read these words, quote, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church 
to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. In other words, by coming to church, by hanging out in church, hanging out with other believers, we can be induced to a high regard of the Bible. Yes, absolutely. They continue. And the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, the divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the words in our hearts. What is all of this to say? Saving conviction that the Bible is the Word of God is produced by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what all of this is saying. And again, it should, I, I want to, uh, before we go any further, I, I want to reiterate that. It should be said at the starting that deep saving conviction of the Bible is the Word of God is produced in the heart by the Holy Spirit of God. That's why a child can uh, say, I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, yet he or she may not be able to tell a person why. And that's why in the church so many of us can really fully with certainty believe that what we have here is the Word of God, but maybe not be able to give a reason why it's the Word of God. But 1 Peter 3.15, and I would like you to turn there if you will, 1 Peter 3.15, some of you know the passage very well. Uh, you'll find it, if you're making use of the Bible that's on your seats, near your seats, you'll find it on page 1016. This is a charge that's given to us by the Apostle Peter in God's Word. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. It's a responsibility each one of us who calls on the name of the Lord has. And he writes in verse 15, uh, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, Paul is calling the church, every member of the church, uh, who calls on the name of Christ, to be prepared to be able to give a reasonable response uh, to why we have hope in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, this would include being able to give a reasonable response to why we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Now, when this question is asked to church today, because we live in such a pragmatic age, typically the answer that a lot of people will give, they'll say, well, I, someone asked me why I believe in the Word of God. I know what I'll answer. I'm going to say I believe in the Word of God because it's changed my life. I believe in the Word of God because it's got me through so many tough times. Is that a good answer? Is that a reasonable answer? Some are saying, yeah. There's a problem with that answer, though. The Muslim says the same thing. Years ago, when I was doing ministry at Columbiana County Jail, 
um, there was a, a woman that she really fell in her conviction of the gospel and she repented of her sins and she had lived under a bridge and uh, under a, one of the, the clover leaves of I-90 up in the projects of, uh, of Cleveland. She lived in a cardboard box and uh, she uh, had been in trouble most of her life. She was addicted to heroin since she was 14. She was 40 when I met her and uh, the Lord changed her life. And when she got out of, uh, out of jail, she came to Tammy and I and said, listen, I'm not going back to Cleveland. I know what will happen. I want to I wanna change. I want to I make a change here. And we're like, wow, okay. We really weren't prepared for that. We didn't really know what to do. Uh, so we, we got her into a halfway house, and things went well for about three or four days, and she got thrown out of the halfway house. We got her into another halfway house. Things got thrown bad. She, I think she made it there maybe, I don't know, five days or something, and then she got thrown out. So we started calling around, and we found another program up in Kent, Ohio. And we managed to get her up there under one condition, that Tammy and I sponsor her and come to uh, these meetings, Al-Anon meetings. So Tammy and I did that. So every Thursday, we had to drive to Kent, Ohio, and take place in these meetings. And in these meetings, there were people gathered around a circle saying with, with great conviction, and with sincerity, that uh, finger painting had changed their lives. And they just found a way to be able to express themselves by finger painting. And uh, they were attributing finger painting to saving their life. And uh, others journaling, it was a really big, uh, a lot of the therapists up there were, were uh, calling people to journal and they began to journal. And they thought, oh, this is life changing, uh, journaling. So you see where I'm going with this? So it, it, the Bible has changed my life. The Bible has changed your life. This is true. But is it a, is it a reasonable response to the one who asks, Why can you, how can you tell me that the Bible is the Word of God? Uh, the answer is no. It's not a reasonable response. Um, I originally uh, had written, I, I, I have like a lot of material here. Don't be scared. I'm not going to throw all this at you this morning. I mean, I got a lot of material here. I, I originally intended to give a short answer because this is new to many of you. It's not new to all of you. So I want to minister to all of you. So I wanted to give a short answer because I want everyone to go out that door this morning with an answer, a reasonable answer as to why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I thought I'm going to give a short answer. I'm going to expand on that for just a couple of minutes. Then I'm going to give a more extended answer. And I thought, there's a lot of stuff here. Maybe I'll bounce this off my wife and see how that goes. And about three o'clock yesterday afternoon, I, uh, I had been writing since nine in the morning, and um, I, I bounced it all off of Tammy, and she so graciously listened attentively, but I could tell uh, at about page eight, I could tell um, she was starting to get weary, and I thought, oh boy, um, I'm not going to dump all this on everybody <laughs> tomorrow morning. Then I thought, now what do I do with it? Um, where do I divide it up? Where do I split it up? It wasn't written to be two parts. Now it's going to have to be two parts. Well, uh, this morning I got up very early and I revamped it. And this morning what I want to do is give the short answer to the question. The short answer. This is my answer. This is my step forward. If I were sitting in a, in a, uh, sem up in seminary and I had an exam in front of me and they said, okay, give me... You know, and, and, you know, I don't want you to, a lot of the professors say, listen, I don't want you to write me a book, but give me a reasonable response to why you believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Uh, this is what I would say. 
And when I say I want all of us to be able to go out that door, able to give a reasonable response, you really only need to remember three words to be able to do that. And the first word is resurrection. Resurrection. Why do I believe that these 66 books are the Word of God, and that this is the Bible, the real Bible, in short, is because of the resurrection. Now, let me flesh this out for you. Jesus made constant reference to the Hebrew Scriptures, and I could go to so many places. Uh, let me just go. You, you don't need to turn there, uh, but this will be really fresh on some of your minds. I choose this passage because I was just there Friday at the coffee hour, uh, looking at what the church has historically called the temptation of Jesus. I mean, we're studying spiritual warfare, and here Jesus, uh, he uh, goes face to face with the unbridled assault of Satan himself. Well, that's a good passage to study if you're studying spiritual warfare. We are told that Jesus, right after his baptism, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now Jesus answers in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, by saying this, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And by saying this, Jesus is indeed embracing the Deuteronomy 8.3 is the Word of God. And if we go through the ministry of Christ, especially in Matthew, you remember when we were studying Matthew, constantly Matthew is saying, and so the Scriptures would be fulfilled, and so the Scriptures would be filled, or as it is written. Matthew, more so than any of the other Gospel writers, appeal to the Old Testament as they make their case that Jesus is the Christ. And they do this, Matthew's doing this, because he's writing largely to a Jewish audience who had the Hebrew Bible. Make sense? Jesus himself embraced the Hebrew Scriptures as the Word of God. He quotes from every book in the Hebrew Bible. If my memory serves me correctly, he quotes from every single book but Esther. If something's telling me a memory, there's no quotations from the book of Esther by Christ. So he embraces the entire Old Testament, and he embraces it very clearly in the context that as these things come up, Jesus is embracing it as the Word of God. Now, Jesus also claimed to be God, didn't he? You remember as we were studying Matthew, all of those passages over and over again where Jesus claimed to be God. Now, that in and of itself is not proof that the Bible is the Word of God because really, I mean, um, one of us, if we wanted to, I don't know, think any of us would want to do such a thing, but we could pretty much run around saying pretty much whatever we want, and we could point to about any body of material and say it's the Word of God, and we might even be bold enough to say that we are the Son of God, that we are God. I mean, people can run around saying anything they want, but here is something that nobody can do. Nobody can say that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, be crucified, and then on the third day rise again, and then appear to more than 500 people. So the resurrection proves the claims of Christ. 
right? And one of those claims is that the Hebrew Scriptures are the Word of God. So you see, we've got resurrection. And if you can make that argument, if you can think that argument through, you're given a pretty good reason, you're given a, a very reasonable answer to why we would embrace the Bible as the Word of God. And I pray that this will deepen your faith in the Bible as the Word of God as you think this through. And that it will equip you to be able to tell others. Now, someone might be sitting here thinking, well, Rick, all right, good, that sounds okay. But you're only covering the Old Testament. Someone's going to say, okay, what about the, what about the New Testament? What do, we, what do we do here with the New Testament? Well, with the New Testament, uh, again, I'm going to give you a short answer. We're going to look at a more extended answer later, but the short answer is a second word that you need to remember, and it's miracles. Miracles. We think resurrection, and we think miracles. The um, apostles were given the ability to perform signs, wonders and mighty works. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. He says it again in Romans 15, 18 to 19. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Again, Hebrews 2 verse 4 tells us, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now Jesus had promised just before His crucifixion that He would send the Holy Spirit. Right? He promised that. We've already looked at one passage uh, where that comes right from that discourse. And after his resurrection, he made good on that promise. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles were empowered to accompany their message with powerful signs, wonders, and miracles, weren't they? And eyewitnesses saw these things, correct? So much to the degree that they were flocking to the, uh, the apostles the same way they were flocking to Jesus. You got a loved one in the house who's dying. What are you going to do? You're hearing about the apostles. You're going to get that loved one to the apostles. And that's what all of us would do if this was taking place. Now, I want to add something to this. You see why I wanted to cut this sermon short? I mean, you want to do 11 pages of this uh, this morning? <laughs> We're only on page four. <laughs> uh, I'll comfort you by saying we're only going to page five. Deuteronomy warns us about a third thing we need to keep in our minds, and that's coherence, or you could use consistency if you want. So we would have resurrection, we'd have miracles, we'd have consistency. What do I mean by consistency? Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, which is a warning about false prophets. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Okay, this seems to suggest that there may be people who actually can perform some of these signs or wonders. Okay, so signs and wonders in and of themselves is not enough criteria. There's still something else. Okay, Let a, if the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, 
And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So here we learn that it's not simply enough, and this is really important in a day of charlatans, it's not enough simply to see a sign or a wonder. We're also looking for consistency in the message with what has already been taught. Now we've already, we've got the Hebrew Scriptures here according to Christ as the Word of God. So whatever message is going to be delivered, whatever message is going to come after these signs and wonders, they need to have consistency with the Word of God, correct? Now, uh, Jesus leads the way in this. I'm going to ask you to turn with me one more passage to Luke 24. I couldn't think of a better passage than this one to develop this point. Luke 24, and by incidentally, this was one of the first passages that I owned out of the Bible. Uh, I was greatly indebted to a man named Andrew Murray. I had no idea who he was, if I should trust him or not, but he had a little discourse and a little book on Luke 24. It made sense to me, and, and uh, this was one of the first passages I really studied and began, to, I, I felt like I began to understand in the Bible. The context is after the resurrection. It's Sunday. It's actually the very day of the resurrection. Jesus was crucified the previous Friday. He is risen. And uh, we read in verse 13, Matthew 24, verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. That's two disciples. Going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about these things that had happened, uh, while, namely the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes, look at verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. You see the testimony, the work of the Holy Spirit necessary for us to be able to see? When you hear me praying, Lord, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, this is where I'm getting that from. I'm not making it up. We, we have to have the Holy Spirit working our hearts to open up our eyes to see these things. Their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Verse 17, and He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? That is funny. Can you read that and not chuckle or at least not smile? They're looking at Jesus saying, Are you the only one? Like, where are you from, man? You're the, are you, you must be the only one in Jerusalem that has no idea what's going on. He's the only one in Jerusalem that does realize what's going on. <laughs> Verse 19, he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in wonder, or word, I'm sorry, before God and all of the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. 
but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look at verse 27 with me. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them and all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. We have the resurrection miracle and we have coherence with the word of God. Coherence with the Old Testament scriptures, correct? As Jesus is teaching them out of the Hebrew scriptures, that's the consistency, the coherence. He's teaching them out of the Hebrew Bible, which we've already established as the word of God. And he's teaching that these things apply to him. Now, of course, the apostles, uh, they do the same thing. Paul went into the synagogues. You read the book of Acts. What, was his, what, what did he do in every town he went into? If there was a synagogue, what did he do? He went into the synagogue and he reasoned from what? He reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, right? See, that's that third word, coherence. That's an important word. We don't want to forget that. So we got, we have, what do we have? Let's put this all together and I'll wrap up. We have resurrection, right? Jesus embraced the scriptures as from God. Jesus claimed to be God and the resurrection proved Jesus to be God. So God himself has told us that the Hebrew scriptures are his word. Correct? Now, short answer to the New Testament, the miracles performed by the apostles, along with their coherence with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, show that the teaching of the apostles is indeed the word of God. It's not enough that they perform signs and miracles. We're thinking of Deuteronomy 13. But they reason from the Hebrew Bible that their message, namely that Jesus is the Christ, was all foretold in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So what are our three words? Resurrection, miracles, and consistency. And there were eyewitnesses all over the place who saw these things. And as the apostles began to uh, age, these things were written down. The teaching of the, of the apostles was written, and they have, these writings have come to us as the New Testament. Amen. Heavenly Father, boys, we look and we gaze at all of the work that went along with giving us your word, O oh Father. Uh, you've given us a medium upon which you could communicate to us, and you've, you've as Calvin used to say, you, you talk baby talk to us, Father. You, well, Father, you have communicated to us in a way that we can understand. And Father, you have not left us to guess as to whether the words that we have here in the 66 books of our Bible are your words, Father, for the evidence is so conclusive. Oh, Father, that um, it requires a lot of faith to uh, really to disagree that this is your word. But, oh, Father, we recognize that really the clincher is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, oh, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That, Father, we have this conviction that, Lord, this is indeed your word. 
But, oh, Father, we're also thankful, Lord, as we study your word, that that conviction is deepened by all of the evidence to the same. And, oh, Father, I pray that, Lord, as we think about these three points, resurrection, miracles, and consistency or coherence, Father, indeed, our faith would be deepened in the word of God and that we would be equipped, each one, to give a reasonable answer to those who ask, why do we believe that? The Bible is the Word of God. For, O oh Lord, there is no body of material, no body of literature that can make claims to a resurrection of the Son of God and the miracles that gave testimony to the consistency of the message with that Word. So, O oh Father, we thank You and we praise You. What is man that You're so mindful of him that, O oh Father, You would do these things for us? We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing, Jesus, to the cross. Mm-hmm.